You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Election 2024, the Post Political Roundtable. I'm Sean Sullivan, the campaign editor here at The Washington Post. And today we continue our discussion of the 2024 presidential race with some of the top political reporters in our newsroom. We begin today with Jackie Alemany, a congressional investigations reporter here at The Post. Jackie, welcome to Election 2024. Great to have you on the program. Hey, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. So, Jackie, I wanted to begin with this uh, terrific story that you and some of your colleagues had uh, over the weekend, a great front page story on Sunday in The Post that basically sort of went through what I guess can best be described as a really surreal period on Capitol Hill uh, the past few weeks. For somebody who's just tuning in now to all of what has happened with this speakership drama, can you just sort of walk us through what happened, how we got here, and, and, and where we are right now? Yeah, Sean. Well, TLDR, Mike Johnson has a lot of goodwill and really came out of nowhere to, to become speaker in really less than 24 hours, going from a backbencher to um, someone who garnered all 220 votes of support from his Republican colleagues to become House Speaker. But the real test has has yet to begin as he faces a series of uh, potentially government shutdown issues uh, to that he needs to get over the finish line imminently, really, um, from everything to passing a potential continuing resolution to avoid a shutdown um, for supplementary aid to Israel, uh, Ukraine, Taiwan, and a number of other unresolved issues, um, to really just governing overall. He has a number of other um, measures that his, that House lawmakers are expected to bring to the floor um, this week, including an expulsion of Congressman George Santos from New York. Um, but what we did over the weekend was really look at this, this day-long period where Tom Emmer dropped out of the race and, and Mike Johnson quickly ascended to the most powerful legislative position in, in uh, in Congress, uh, number you know number three really to the presidency. Um, my colleagues Mariana Sotomayor, uh, Theo Meyer, and, and Leanne Caldwell are extremely well sourced. We got sort of the most insane in the room details of what exactly played out uh, as lawmakers were deliberating after an exhausting 21 day stretch without a speaker. And uh, Mike Johnson really, his 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 uh, fortunes uh, all came down to the fact that he was well liked. Members were exhausted, fatigued by what had gone on over the past month, uh, and also he had a, his lack really of a national profile. He hasn't been vetted. He uh, doesn't have that long of a record. He's only been in the House since 2017, and um, lawmakers at, at this point were just ready to get him over the finish line. Yeah, you said it with the inside the room details. Uh, really felt like I was I was right there. I wanted to ask you, Jackie, to elaborate on that point about Mike Johnson, the person who, as you point out, is not a household name. Um, you all had a pretty illustrative quote in your story where somebody sort of called him a quote blank canvas. Um, he is also somebody who, you know, as we've reported, uh, was involved in efforts to overturn the election in 2020. What is his reputation on Capitol Hill, both personally, policy-wise, for people who know him? Um, you know, what is he known for? What kind of what kind of person are we talking about? Yeah, I think what was so confounding and interesting about Johnson ascending to 
um, the speaker's seat to replacing McCarthy was all was all of the contradictions. First of all, uh, that Johnson is ultra conservative, as you noted, an election denier was one of the legal architects who encouraged House GOP lawmakers to sign on to the amicus brief to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Um, he's had a number of extremely conservative votes, a very conservative voting record, is uh, known as um, being a Trump supporter, evangelical. He was in support of um, the laws that bans abortion in Louisiana. Um, and again, has just a very extensive track record as, as a, uh, you know, even outside of Congress when he was a state legislator in, state legislator in Louisiana as someone who, again, is just ultra conservative. But um, unlike Jim Jordan, doesn't have that that national ID, wasn't as viewed um, as, a, as much of a boogeyman the way that I think Democrats or Republicans feared Democrats would hang Jim Jordan around their necks, especially these Biden 18, these lawmakers who won um, despite uh, being their districts being uh, going for for Biden the the last midterms and who are worried that someone like Jordan could have tilted the districts back in, into Democrats' hands in 2024. Um, but what was also sort of contradictory and ironic here was that Johnson similarly made um, promises and, and laid out this plan with lawmakers that he was going to pass another continuing resolution potentially that would go until January or April. This is the same um, situation that ultimately got McCarthy ousted. As soon as he brought a continuing resolution to the floor, he was voted out as speaker three days later. There was still this faction of the Republican Party who did ultimately support Mike Johnson, but you know got rid of McCarthy because of uh, the fact that he put a CR on the floor and averted a government shutdown to begin with. Jackie, you mentioned the Biden 18, uh, which I'm endlessly fascinated by. And given that we are election 2024, we wanted to ask you about what, if any, electoral implications you see here, both in terms of what the image of House Republicans and the House GOP conference is going to be right now to Americans, but also just from sort of a fundraising, blocking and tackling perspective. I mean, Kevin McCarthy was somebody who had a big money machine, who was tight with donors. What, if any, implications do you see here now with this new leadership when it comes to whether the Republicans can hold on to their majority in 2024? Yeah, Sean. Well, what we've been told is that McCarthy is going to continue to help with his prolific fundraising efforts as Johnson uh, really pales in comparison. But what a number of lawmakers told us yesterday was that this is one of the reasons why Johnson is so well-liked in part, because he you know, doesn't have K Street on speed dial, is not focused on um, fundraising and, and dialing for dollars all the time and doesn't necessarily have those um, super PAC big money relationships uh, that others who have had a longer and, and uh, more story tenure than him do. That being said, they've said that, you know, fundraising at the end of the day is not that difficult. I believe it was uh, Ken Buck who told me, uh, you know, quite simply, you get a bunch of numbers, you make those calls, you ask for money, and then you raise the money. And as much money as you raise depends on really how many people you call, uh, and that it's not that uh, hard of a task or a tall order. Um, of course, there are others that disagree, uh, especially, you know, pro-McCarthy um, acolytes who feel like the House is in for a surprise going into next year without someone in that top seat who who can rake in a lot of money to keep these um, endangered, vulnerable Republicans on the airwaves and in their seats, potentially. But I think that the concern from um, 
some of these vulnerable Democrats, a lot of them uh, being in New York, for example, we saw a, a pretty cohesive faction there hold out and negotiate together. The reason why they ultimately, uh, in part, got behind Johnson was because they sort of saw him as less of, of an issue than Trump. At the end of the day, he's going to be on the top of the ticket. And they sort of felt like Johnson was secondary to the Trump issue and the way that they're going to need to, to manage their relationship with the GOP nominee going into what inevitably will be a contentious reelection. Yeah, shaping up that way. Last thing I want to ask you, Jackie, we've got about a minute left. Uh, we've talked a lot about the Republicans. How do the Democrats see this? What does the White House think? What does President Biden think? What are the Democrats on Capitol Hill think? Is this somebody they can work with or is this somebody that they're going to have a pretty antagonistic relationship with in the next year? I think that remains to be seen. Democrats feel like uh, under you know the leadership of Hakeem Jeffries that they handled this entire situation as well as they could have um, when there was uh, when we were looking at a potentially speaker Jim Jordan there was this feeling that that Democrats had really nailed the situation by um, ultimately you know uh, voting to oust Kevin McCarthy and and go without a speaker because he was someone that they felt like would definitely put the nail in the coffin for Republicans going into 2024 to deliver the majority for Democrats. As for Mike Johnson, we saw a number of Democrats, you know, go and shake his hand and wish him well on the House floor uh, on uh, Wednesday and Thursday as he was voted in to be House Speaker. Um, I think that there is a, a bit more goodwill just because, again, he is an unknown entity and has not been tested. He's not someone that Democrats have worked all that closely with, especially when it comes to negotiating these big appropriations packages. Um, so it's going to be a learning experience, I think, for everyone. Of course, though, there is some trepidation about um, his, his voting record whether or not he'll bring some of these ultra-conservative things he's previously supported to the House floor, um, and uh, you know whether or not Democrats can use that to their advantage in their re-election campaigns uh, next year by painting you know these vulnerable Republicans um, as people who are aligned with, as you know, uh, a bunch of lawmakers have started calling him MAGA Mike Johnson. Yeah, no doubt a lot to watch on both sides over the next year. We'll have to leave it right there for now. But thank you so much uh, for joining us, Jackie. Thanks, Sean. Okay, I want to continue the program right now with a conversation with two more of our reporters, Josh Dossie, who is a political investigations and enterprise reporter here at The Post, and Tyler Pager, who covers the White House here for us at The Post. Guys, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks. Josh, I wanted to start with you. I wanted to ask you about this big news out in the campaign trail today. We saw this new poll in Iowa from the Des Moines Register. Shows Trump ahead uh, by a lot uh, over Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley now climbing into second place uh, and challenging Ron DeSantis for that spot. How do you see the race in Iowa right now overall, just in the big picture, um, as we're, I think, you know, less than uh, three months before people will actually go uh, and caucus uh, in, on what will probably be a very cold night in Iowa. Yeah, that poll uh, by the sort of revered pollster in Iowa, Ann Seltzer, sort of indicates what we've seen throughout our reporting in the last few months, that Rod DeSantis has basically taken all of his proverbial eggs and put them in the Iowa basket. They're spending all their money, uh, their resources there, they're moving staff out to the state. Uh, he says he's seeing every county. Uh, they're mocking Trump for not being there as much and for a series of verbal gaffes when he's made there. But 
none of it really seems to be reverberating yet. I mean, Trump has had a dominant lead in the state, just as he's had in national polls and other early states uh, throughout of the last four or five, six months, and nothing really has changed that. Uh, if anything, um, it seems his deepening legal problems and 91 indictments against him in four different jurisdictions have only wedded primary voters more strongly towards him uh, in the past uh, few months. So uh, that poll is sort of illuminating of what we um, have, have watched this primary be throughout the last few months, which is not much of a contest at all. I mean, some of the other candidates, uh, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, uh, say, you know, they believe there's data and anecdotes on the ground and sort of what they feel on the ground that doesn't match the polling. But I must say, Republicans have been saying that about Trump since 2015, the ones who want to take him on and others. And it really is not that compelling of an argument anymore. Yeah, we certainly have heard that a lot for many, many years. So, Tyler, I want to ask you, you've covered the White House and uh, the Biden campaign pretty closely. How are they viewing this Republican race? Are they effectively looking at this and concluding, you know, our strategy is basically built around the fact that we think Trump's going to be the nominee? Are they trying to sort of stay loose? What's their kind of rationale and strategy right now as they as they watch this from the other side? Yeah, they're pretty focused on a Biden-Trump rematch for 2024, and a lot of their energy has been shifted toward attacking Trump um, and building up a general election campaign in the key swing states where they will need to defeat him from Wisconsin, Arizona, Michigan, Georgia, Pennsylvania, those sorts of places where the election will be won or lost. And they you know, are looking at the same polls that, that we're seeing, and as Josh just uh, outlined quite, quite expensively, there is not a real competition on the Republican side to this point, and there's no real evidence that that is going to change in the coming weeks and months. As, as you said, caucus goers will be heading uh, to their sites in, in a few months to uh, in Iowa and then in New Hampshire. And, you know, I think they feel pretty confident that they will be facing up against Trump again. And, and there's a lot of optimism and confidence that, uh, you know, Biden can defeat him again. I think there's also some some quiet worries um, that that this will be closer um, and more competitive than some Democrats are arguing publicly. Um, I, I've been speaking with some senior Biden campaign advisors in recent days, and, and they are uh, expressing a little bit more trepidation than I've heard um, in recent months in the past few weeks. I think the confluence of global events, the, the war uh, in Israel, uh, the, the war in Ukraine, and just a general dissatisfaction among American voters, I think is contributing to a sense that there is um, a little bit more trepidation about a Biden-Trump rematch than maybe there was a few months ago when Trump's legal troubles were, were really more in the news. I think that may change as he eventually goes to trial in some of these cases. But right now, I think it's a precarious moment for Biden. Yeah, it does seem that way. And it seems like we're starting to hear that more openly from some uh, some Democrats as well. Josh, I want to return to the Republican race for a moment. And the other big news uh, over the last couple of days was Mike Pence, who ended his campaign over the weekend, surprised some people. He had gained no traction. You've covered Pence for a long time. You've had a lot of sharp reporting and observations on him. Can you help us sort of understand how somebody goes from first in line to the presidency to ending his campaign with virtually no support before Halloween? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I mean, when Mike Pence decided to buck Trump uh, going into Jan 6 and to certify the results of the uh, election and to sort of take on uh, the former president who obviously castigated him uh, publicly many times and sort of you know, said he was not loyal, he sort of broke from 
uh, what had been uh, an obsequiousness to Trump. He had been his loyal number two for a long time and sort of went about on his own way. The problem he had was that there was no really political base for him. There were a lot of Trump voters who thought he, you know, did the wrong thing, right, by not going along with his um, push to overturn the election and his false claims of electoral fraud. Uh, a lot of moderate voters um, in the Republican Party, I don't think, trusted him because they viewed him as sort of a Trump acolyte. I think the campaign, though, the Pence campaign, can almost be seen as less of a presidential campaign and more of uh, him trying to sort of reassert himself in a different way. I don't think the people around Mike Pence wanted uh, the last uh, kind of thing in this chapter of his public life to be what happened around Jan 6 and after Jan 6. I mean, they wanted to sort of get him back in the mix of political life. I mean, I talked to some of his top advisors months ago, and they were under no illusions on how this was going to go. I mean, publicly, Penn said he was going to be, you know, the next president, and that's what every candidate says, but they were seeing the same polling. They were getting the same reactions on the field. They didn't believe that uh, he was likely to be the nominee. But I do think he had an argument that he wanted to make, that, uh, you know, what he did was right, that he was a constitutional conservative, that he should not be sort of defined by what happened on Jan 6, even if a lot of voters didn't necessarily buy it. And clearly, they did not hear because he was out, uh, as you said, before Halloween. I think it was important to him to go out and say those things uh, in the last few months. And, you know, I don't know what comes next for him. It doesn't seem like in the changing Republican Party that we've been covering that Mike Pence is going to be, there'll be a clamoring for Mike Pence, but I, I guess that, that could change. But, I mean, I really think after he sort of uh, would not go along with Trump's desire to overturn the election. That was sort of the death blow in this current version of the Republican Party. Yeah, really a fascinating uh, fall for him over the past couple of years. Uh, Tyler, not just the Republicans right now that are navigating a contested primary, also the Democrats. Um, Joe Biden, the president, got a new primary challenger last week, Congressman Dean Phillips. Looks like he's a, a pretty big long shot at this point. But what can you tell us about Phillips, his launch, how seriously Democrats across the board are taking him as a threat to Biden right now, and and you know what his central argument is uh, for for joining this race at such a late stage. Yeah, so Phillips got in officially last week, uh, focusing his campaign on New Hampshire, where Joe Biden is not competing, and we'll get into that in a minute. But uh, Phillips's campaign is being greeted like the other Democratic primary challengers that Biden had or has in Marianne Williamson and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. before he uh, became an independent. And that is by largely ignoring him. The Biden campaign didn't put out any specific statement about Dean Phillips and largely didn't say much at all about his campaign. But privately, there are some concerns about his uh, his effort. And that's not because they think Dean Phillips is going to defeat Joe Biden. But Dean Phillips's main argument is that Joe Biden is too old to be president. Dean Phillips has supported Biden uh, throughout his presidency up until now, where he's saying he's doing the right things. He just can't serve another four years. And the problem therein lies for the Biden campaign is that there is a fellow Democrat, an elected member of Congress, who is going to spend the next several weeks and months just continuing to bat at this idea that Joe Biden is too old. And we've already seen that an overwhelming number of Democratic voters believe that to be the case. And now that effort has a has a spokesperson who's going to have a pretty large platform. So Dean Phillips is not a serious threat to winning the nomination, but there are concerns in the Biden campaign and around the Democratic Party that he will undercut Biden and serve 
to hurt him when he moves into a general election against Donald Trump. Obviously, this is an argument that Donald Trump has been making for many months, and many Republicans and independents and Democrats feel uh, concerns about Joe Biden's uh, age. He's 80 years old and would be 86 at the end of a second term. So that is the, the key problem that Democrats face with this long shot primary challenge from Dean Phillips. Yeah, that's a lot of interesting stuff to watch there on the Democratic side. Uh, Josh, going back to the Republicans for a second, they're going to have another debate uh, next week in Miami. We've talked in some of our meetings about kind of how the debates feel different than they have in past cycles. They're sort of a more diminished setting. We've seen this with, you know, the the ratings right. even um, over the last couple of them. Donald Trump, the front runner, has decided that he's not going to participate. Um, if he does that again on uh, you know, next Wednesday when this debate is supposed to happen, could see a similar thing play out. What, what are you looking for, uh, both for what uh, what we're going to see from these candidates who are sort of racing in this second tier, and also from Trump on that day, who has found ways to sort of do his own counter-programming and draw attention to himself? Well, a lot of these candidates just need to survive, right? I mean, they're struggling to get on the stage. They've got to meet the donor threshold. They've got to meet the polling threshold. Um, they're sort of flailing about trying to make a moment, trying to get some momentum. I mean, you look at Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are both sort of jockeying for a second place and a diminished second place to Trump. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy for a while had boomed, but I don't see that really happening much anymore, at least according to the public polls and what you hear in early states. Uh, Tim Scott's campaign, by all accounts, is not doing particularly well. Uh, so really, it's it's a Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis show right now. Obviously, Pence has dropped out. You might have Doug Burgum on the stage. But um, there's not going to be a lot of, a lot of us folks are just trying to sort of stay alive and stay relevant. And, and DeSantis and Haley are going to try and, and make some moves. I mean, you see both of their camps taking each other on uh, more publicly, attacking each other for things in their record as governors of South Carolina and Florida, respectively, uh, coming up with new sort of critiques because they understand that as this field sort of consolidates and people start dropping out, there's not going to be room for a lot of folks uh, at the end to take on Trump. And one of them, I think, wants to be obviously the person to do it. So I think you'll see the two of them really take each other on. Uh, Trump has been annoyed at all of these presidential debates. I mean, he doesn't like events where he's not the center of attention. But if you talk to the people around him, his advisors, I mean, they don't view these debates as a threat. I mean, they they think he made the right decision uh, by not uh, attending any of these debates. And they look like a JV sort of sideshow uh, that he sort of gets to stay back and look above it all, at least in the minds of Republican primary voters. And I mean, the polling data certainly shows that no one has gotten the traction or attention of those debates to to make him uh, to feel any regrets for skipping. And the Republican Party is sort of trudging through these debates. I mean, if you talk to folks around Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel and, and the folks over there, none of them are feeling any particular sense of joy with these debates. They're not going, no one thinks they're going great. Uh, they're really sort of an undercard stage where, this, where the real show is somewhere else, right? So you'll see a few more of these debates likely, but I don't expect them to move the needle in any sort of meaningful way. I mean, anything can happen, right? And you could see a moment that, that changes it, but it's hard to make that sort of definitional moment that gets the momentum of a candidacy when the person you're taking on isn't even on the stage. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. You see all these candidates try to draw these contrasts with Trump when he's not there. You know, how do you do that? How do you kind of make that point to the American people? Uh, so, Tyler, as the Democrats and as Biden are watching this primary process play out, obviously one that's dominated by Trump, there is also another question, which is Biden's image right now, which seems to be, when you look at a bunch of polls, 
not in terribly good shape, you know, be it with Democrats in his own party, be it with independents, be it with voters across the board. So as they sort of move toward the actual general election kicking in the gear next year, what are they doing to try to improve his image? And what did they sort of chalk this up to? Why is he so unpopular? Again, not just with Republicans, moderates, independents, but with his own party. There's just a lot of Democrats right now who just don't seem to want to give this guy a second term. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a lot of warning signs for the president and for the broader Democratic Party because of the the large sense of you know uh, the number of people that disapprove of of the job he's doing, or even if they slightly approve of it, that don't want him to run for re-election. And I think that's something the campaign, the White House, and the broader party have to reckon with. As we move into next year, I think we're going to continue to see more contrast between the president and Donald Trump as it becomes uh, a two-man race between you know the incumbent and and the former president. I think the White House is really going to try, uh, as they've tried to do, um, make it a clear contrast between what Biden has done and what Trump did and what they are proposing to do if either of them gets a second term. Um, but you know, I, I don't see a whole lot of shift in terms of the president's strategy. I think you know we're going to continue to see him travel a little bit around to do domestic events and give speeches um, about what um, you know his his accomplishments, his agenda, what he has done, and try to sell that to the American people. The problem with that approach is so far it hasn't really moved the needle. Um, most people are not listening to the president's daytime speeches about an infrastructure event or a chips program. Um, that's just not the way that they're going to be able to break through. I think we might see a little bit more creativity on the campaign side. With you know they've been really focused on partnerships with influencers, trying to get Biden out to new audiences. But the standard bully pulpit that Trump used very effectively is not something Biden has done as well. Um, and so I think that's a challenge for the president. I think one of the areas that the White House feels he's been successful at is on the world stage, making trips to Ukraine and Israel, sort of these daring trips for a president to make in the middle of a war zone. Um, but whether or not the American people really care about foreign policy is an open question. We often see it not rate uh, among the most important issues for voters, then prioritizing the economy, uh, among other things. So what we'll see, the, what the president will do next year, I think will be quite interesting to watch. He hasn't really done campaigning in any substantive way. He's done fundraisers to raise money for the campaign and the national party. But beyond that, he's never done an in-person rally. He's not really gone out and done the sort of retail politicking that even Trump has done, you know, going to restaurants in early states, interacting with voters. We haven't seen that from the president yet, and I'm not sure we will for quite some time. Yeah, and Josh, when you look at the other side of this equation with former President Trump, I mean, here's somebody who's also, uh, when you look across the board at a general electorate audience, not somebody who is uh, terribly popular right now as well. The other big story you've been covering is is the Trump trials. I mean, you know, 91 charges, four indictments. He's in and out of courtrooms. Uh, right. As we've talked about, this is sort of you know merging into one thing: a campaign uh, that's happening right. on the trail, but also inside these courtrooms. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how he's navigated that? How his team has sort of dealt with that? I mean, we seem like we're in pretty uncharted yeah. territory here, where somebody's running for president, they're the leading candidate, and they're navigating a bunch of criminal trials at once. Yeah, well, in the Republican primary, he's used the trials to stoke a sense of martyrdom and victimhood, to raise money off of various charges, to raise money off of uh, judges putting gag orders on him for making incendiary comments about witnesses and court staff, uh, to, to convince Republican voters uh, that he 
uh, is being unfairly targeted. And so far, they seem to be buying the argument overwhelmingly. Um, I mean, I was talking to a DeSantis person a couple of weeks ago who said to me, every time he gets charged, we watch for the poll numbers to go up. So that sense of victimhood that he's cultivated uh, does seem to be working. I think it's a totally different dynamic, though, in a general election. I mean, what you're going to see next year, if the trials proceed as scheduled, and that's an open question, uh, the judges could definitely push him back. And people should be prepared for that to potentially happen. But if they proceed as scheduled, you're going to have months of sort of courtroom footage of his own advisors testifying, potentially some of his own lawyers, his own business executives, people who've known him forever, uh, and saying damaging things about him on the stand. Uh, you're going to see potentially convictions. I mean, obviously, he could be found innocent too, but felony convictions is is definitely possible here. Uh, and a lot of revel revelations about things uh, in his past, whether it was hiding classified documents in a bathroom in Mar-a-Lago and obstructing a probe, trying to overturn an election, hush money to a porn star in New York, uh, the case in Georgia where you already see a lot of his attorneys flipping on him. Uh, there's going to be a cascade of bad facts to come out for him. And I don't think those go as well with independent voters and maybe folks who are undecided as uh, they go with dim vote. I mean, they go with Republican primary voters, I mean, right? Uh, there's going to be a different strategy. So uh, in, in, the, in the primary, I don't think these cases have hurt him. Uh, in a general election, what a lot of Republicans fear is that Republican primary voters push him to the nomination, he gets a nomination, um, and next year he's hit with convictions and all sorts of new evidence and cannot win a general election. Now, obviously, uh, the polls right now show that it's eminently winnable for him, but um, that could change with uh, the number of trials that are coming. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And, and Tyler, I'll, I'll toss the last question to you before we run out of time here. But from the Democratic perspective, do the Democrats, do the Biden campaign want to sort of center their general election message around the criminal trials, around the notion of potential wrongdoing? or? Do they step back and say, look, this is something that everybody is aware of, the public knows about it. We don't need to be out there every day talking about it. We can try to focus on uh, a more positive message and promoting Biden's agenda and things like that. Yeah, Sean, it's a great question. And I think it's gonna be a real challenge for the Biden campaign and the president himself, because it is his Department of Justice uh, in at least two of these cases that is prosecuting his, the former president and his political rival. And so how they navigate talking about that from a campaign perspective and from the president is a, is a challenge. The president has been very clear that he will not talk about these cases because he wants to show the American people that it is a fully independent process. But once it becomes Biden versus Trump, uh, as we expect in the general election, and Trump is sitting in courtrooms uh, you know, in DC and Florida and Georgia, um, that is going to be a challenge for the president to reckon with running against a man that he has said uh, is a threat to the American Republic and to the Constitution um, and, and not mention the fact that he is on trial for you know all these counts. So we will see how this shakes out. I think the Biden, uh, the Biden aides have said they want to keep this separate, and they say the American people will see and know uh, what is happening. But how the president, whether he's able to keep his distance for the next year, uh, will be a storyline worth watching. Indeed it will. Uh, I could talk politics with you two all day long. This is great, but unfortunately, we're out of time. So Josh Dossie, Tyler Pager, thank you both for coming on the program today. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.